How to Fix the Internet, a discussion held by the Institute of Data Science and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Exeter in partnership with Agile Rabbit. Hello everyone, welcome to this evening's event, How to Fix the Internet. Now I have to confess what I usually do is uh, switch off the router, go downstairs, make a cup of tea, come back and hope for the best. But we're not talking about that. Instead, we want to get to grips with all the challenges that uh, the internet brings with it. It's a rapidly evolving environment. Can we make it safer? Can we make it a friendlier space? Uh, or is the future one of cutthroat competition and dubious ethical and moral choices? We've got a fantastic panel. Let's meet them. Helen Moggetz is the Director of Public Policy Programme and Professor of Society and the Internet at the Alan Turing Institute uh, at the University of Oxford. Silvia Milano is a lecturer in philosophy of data and data ethics at the Institute for Data, Science and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Exeter. I think we're about to discover it's the University of Exeter 3, Oxford 1, actually. But anyway, um, Chika Camargo is a lecturer in computer science at the Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Exeter. And Mohsen Mosler, actually Mosler? Mosler? Um, is a lecturer in business analytics at the Institute for Data Science also and Artificial Intelligence at Exeter. Welcome to you all. And I should add, there'll be plenty of time for questions at the end, but we'll, we'll get chatting between ourselves for a moment um, and canter through some of the key issues really in front of us. Helen, I'm going to start with you bit of a quick fire if you like you've done a lot of work on online harms and the challenges of online hate but if you were going to pick one key thing right now that you're really worried about what would it be well i think i'll go for uh misogyny uh online um and misogynistic hate speech why because the ways that we are developing to fix the internet and all of us here in some way involved in that are not going to work so well for misogyny because I'll just give two reasons. One is that um, in the online safety bill, which I'm sure we'll talk about coming up, really major piece of legislation, it focuses on what's kind of illegal. And misogyny is not, a, uh, being a woman is not, or gender is not a protected characteristic, which means that hate speech directed is not actually illegal. So that's one thing. Another thing is that most of the people who are going to fix the internet are not women, or at least they're mostly men. I mean, for example, in leading machine learning te uh, conferences, which is one of the key technologies that um, is being used to make the internet a better place, I think 8% of the presenters at those conferences are women. So you can see the people fixing it will, will also not be women. Gosh, yeah, lots to think about there. Chico, turning to you, you've recently co-authored a report in which you look at how algorithms, and I think specifically in this case you were looking at YouTube, how they indiscriminately effectively feed users with videos that they may not want, that actually may end up misinforming them, even offending them, or even violating the platform's own guidelines. How much of a problem is this, would you say? I find that it's a big problem because we use these online platforms like their public infrastructure. And I, I don't know about you, but I use Google like a public library whether it's to you know, how to fix a leak or what's going on in Ukraine. And these companies, they're not trying to be public libraries. They earn money with ads, with whatever sells. And I find that that clash between what they ultimately are trying to do, which is to make money based on advertising, and the way we use them, that is something that, in principle, no algorithm will solve. You know, having the ultimate detector of nonsense 
it's still not going to change the fact that when I want information, I go load up Google and ask something. And there, I find that that's the spikiest problem, um, which is the one that concerns me. Gosh, we're lining up the problems here. Uh, Sylvia, I'm going to build on this a little bit and, and what Chico's been saying. You publish research into the ethical challenges of, of personalised, targeted, targeting rather, and recommender systems. I always think about fluffy slippers in this connotation, but we'll come back to fluffy slippers. But are we being persuaded without even realising? Um, that's, that's a very good question. I think we are all very uh, aware that we are being targeted and manipulated. I think also that the targeting and manipulation that is done to us is often mindless. So this idea that someone is out there trying to instill thoughts in our minds and has a very specific agenda for us and what they want us to do, I think that's actually not the case. And it's much more, uh, in a way, scary because we are being manipulated without even an agenda and without many um, um, ways of realizing when this is going on and ways to addressing it. Gosh, we're not even aware of what's really happening. Okay, Mohsen, one more problem, and then, and then we'll talk about all of these things a little bit more. Uh, you've done a lot of work on misinformation, and everyone's familiar with fake news uh, following a particular US president, but are we coming up with effective ways to tackle misinformation? So I would say, I mean, there have been a great deal of work, I mean, both in by both platforms and researchers, to help reduce this kind of problematic content on the internet. But I would say is not enough at all. So that means a close collaboration between researchers and platform owners, but at the same time, it needs regulation to so make the platforms responsible, both in terms of co close collaboration with the researchers, but also like increasing their transparency and access to data uh, so that researchers can, you know, well study these kind of platforms. And, uh, you know, going back to uh, what Chico mentioned, is that you know that might not be aligned with many of these platforms goal and aims in terms of like making more money as opposed to like reducing you know problematic content gosh yes this is so interesting where you get uh, corporate intent and, and profitability coming up against these ethical issues okay a bit of a survey there of, of some of the things that we're going to talk about let's pick up on some of those themes and begin with this world of, of targeted ads that we, we began to talk about so I'm going to come to fluffy slippers now because that's the thing that always gets to me you search for something like fluffy slippers and then all of a sudden all you can see are ads for fluffy slippers Chico how do these sort of targeted ads work on something like Facebook and, and and what's the trade-off here? Facebook's free, apparently. I have fluffy slippers at home yeah. as well. I didn't <laughs> buy them. So they, it's funny because Facebook works very well if you're trying to advertise stuff there. Um, once for a research project, we wanted to show ads about the project to people who would maybe be interested. In the end, we didn't go down that path, but that gave me a bit of exposure to what the interface is for someone who wants to put an ad there. And depending on the country, you can really kind of drill down to the specific demographics. I want to show this ad to young women in this category, this and that. And the platform will then, in principle, show that to that specific sector. I know that in the United States, you can even choose you know, left-leaning or right-leaning people, and I'll show my ad to people like that. And then there's a lot of little tools to track if the person clicked on the ad, if you know, this many people actually went to the websites that you're offering and all that. So it's a very powerful tool to get people to buy your fluffy slippers or to perhaps change their mind. It's hard to then track, you know, 
that I actually convince people to vote for my candidate. Sure, that's hard and also creates a lot of trouble. No wonder that people started cracking down on political ads. But on the ads point of view, that's essentially what it does. It's a tool full of little things that measure, that track, that put cookies and other things, cookies in, in the web sense, you know, something that's tracking that you visited a website, all to serve this goal of advertising, getting people to buy stuff. And it is effective, it works. Um, and it allows you to target not just broad categories of you know, young women or something, but actually people with this combination of interests. So I'm gonna offer you know, a drink that's maybe a low alcohol CBD drink for people who are in this specific subsector of the UK. That kind of stuff is now possible. So it kind of goes back to the targeting thing. It's a very powerful, advertising tool you can bid for a keyword certain keywords like you know broken car or something those are pretty good keywords because then when your car's broken you need to fix it so i don't have it off of the top of my head but it's probably an expensive keyword because people need it different from fluffy slippers where you know it's not such an emergency i mean maybe but you well claim here. <laughs> so okay let's dig down into this a little bit more what are these black box algorithms i mean how are they optimized what, what is a black box algorithm first of all right i feel like the term black box and like, you guys correct me if i'm wrong but i think it comes from the airplanes where you know there's that box that just like, supposedly has a, a some re record of everything that's been said in the airplane but the it's a metaphor that people use all the time to talk about algorithms where you know what goes in data what goes out maybe some decision of recommending this project but what's actually happening inside is a lot harder to assess, even to the software developer, because very often these algorithms will have thousands, sometimes billions, if not more, of little parameters being optimized, all to try to like, maximize how much clickability stuff will get. So to a point where you have today machine learning researchers and artificial intelligence institutes developing tools so that we can look into the algorithms and figure out what they're doing. It feels like a, a backwards process where we made tools and now we're actually not sure how they work. So every new you know, fancy AI that appears in the news, very often we kind of don't quite work out how limited they are or how biased they might be. Someone will release a fancy tool. I remember Microsoft released an AI called Tay around 2016. It was meant to be a teenage chatbot. And within like a day, it was already saying some Nazi stuff and being horrible to immigrants because it was trained to mimic whatever it heard. So people on the internet being people on the internet, they said, okay, we're gonna teach it to be a horrible person. And it learned it very quickly. Couldn't the developers think of that first? No, they made a machine learning model that was good at repeating stuff back. And people being creative worked out a way to make it break. And this story happens over and over again. Like the thing is a black box in that we don't know what it can do and how it can go wrong. And then someone with enough time on their hands find a way to make it go wrong. Gosh, so Sylvia, we don't always understand the inner workings of these things, judging by what Chico's saying, but when we look at targeted ads and other forms of recommendation, do they bring out what is already there, like people are horrible on the internet, or do they actually create a kind of negativity in and of themselves? Well, I think there's enough research to back the, the claim that they actually do create a lot of negativity in and of themselves. Uh, it's actually quite difficult to pinpoint exactly where this happens. Part of it is amplifying views and sentiments that may be negative because they lead to more clicks. 
Um, and uh, part of it might also be because, um, well, and we don't know exactly what goes into the black box, but we know that from auditing how, for instance, ads work, uh, that often they get targeted on the basis of what humans might recognize as prejudice. Mm. For instance, yeah, we were uh, talking earlier about the fact that uh, Facebook ads, as an example, um, might target job advertisements or other type of opportunities very differently to men and women in the audience, even when the advertisers have explicitly selected that they want to reach women as well as men. So, so give us an example. What kind of job might not go to a woman, for instance? Um, so for instance, a high-paying CEO job or like... Um, or a data scientist. Or yeah. a data scientist, mm. exactly. But the point is that this is reproducing biases that we already are aware of in society, even when people who would like to go against these biases instruct the algorithm to do otherwise. But because of everything that goes on in the optimizing black box, this turns out to be actually more complex and more difficult to do, and mm. even shows that monitoring and trying to um, you know, raise awareness of these things might not be enough, because then you're running against the black box that will be optimizing against your wishes. So, yeah. Helen, this all sounds very scary. We're being encouraged to stay on platforms. We're being sold stuff we perhaps didn't even know we wanted. Um, and there are all these inherent biases. Should we be worried about targeted ads or recommendations quite as much as it might appear from this conversation? Well, yes, but we should also not feel hopeless about it. I think there's quite often a problem with the internet and particularly social media and later generations of technology that is kind of washing us over it's over us it's a tide that we cannot stop we cannot do anything about it and that's not quite right there are things we can do for example in the UK we're going to have an online safety bill as I mentioned before I mean all sorts of things have happened to that online safety bill. It's taken about 10 years to get to this point where we're actually going to pass a piece of legislation. But it's still an exciting piece of legislation. It's still a good thing. It's still more, it's kind of braver than has been tried in other countries. And it does take a kind of system approach to the companies. There will be some sort of general things that they won't be able to do. Or, or they will be monitored on at least. At the moment, the big platform companies, they produce, say they produce a, a transparency report, so-called, saying how many pieces of content they've taken down and all the things they've done to tackle things like hate speech and misinformation and malicious advertising and so on. But they just publish what they want in that transparency report, so it's not very, if it's bad for them, it doesn't, it's not very transparent. Um, so taking an approach to legislation that actually tackles that at the kind of system level and puts rules on what they can and can't do is a positive move. So that's one example of what we can do. There's lots of other ones, but you know it goes across all levels of society, but, but that's an important one. So let's hold on to that thought. Mason, I'm going to bring you in, and I, I want to talk about misinformation, which is crucial in a way to this conversation. If you think about it, do we know who shares misinformation? Is it all of us? Is it particular types of people? So we have done quite a bit of research. So I would say like we can think about two broader groups of people who share misinformation. One group of people are those who are like creating, deliberating this kind of content. So trying to push for certain narratives, 
against a particular group. But on the other hand, we have groups of people, which you know could be like large number of us, is that you know we, we share this kind of content because we don't pay attention to the accuracy of the content. We don't pay attention or feel responsible that we, when we share some piece of content that we are not sure about, all of our followers and followers of followers are exposed to that bad content. And we have done work that you know, even just like trying to be discerning in whatever we are sharing can significantly improve this kind of content. But going back to what uh, Helen mentioned earlier, but you know, uh, in, in the context of misinformation, these kind of platforms, like social media platforms, are designed for other reasons, like increasing engagement. P people are more exposed to these kind of ads. And by design, you know, when you're sitting at home, you're going through your phone late in the evening, just like scrolling down, find something that's like, oh, it's very interesting, maybe I share it with my friends, or how many likes it might get if I share it. But at the same time, we want to think about that, is it accurate or not? Mm. How it will affect the beliefs and, you know, uh, people's perception from their society in my followers group and all of followers of followers. And something to mention that, again, back to Silvio's point, is that what we need to think about as social media ecosystem and internet in general is that you know, this system, this ecosystem is not biased by, on its own, but we wanted to make sure that it doesn't amplify biases that already existed in our society. But, but something that I find intriguing and I come up against a lot as a journalist is once misinformation is out there, it's very hard to correct it. So you can actually make it worse by trying to correct it. That's certainly been my experience. I mean, I would say there's been done a great deal of work and very you know, effective so far. There's like, you know, journalists and fact checkers are doing great work. But at the same time, I think one of the problem here is just bringing these two pieces together, delivering, effectively delivering fact checks to people who are sharing this kind of misinformation. So we have done a study that we found that some people, there's like a backfire effect if you correct some people directly. But you know, there are mechanisms that we can leverage to effectively share these kind of uh, fact checks with people who share mis misinformation, trying to self-correct themselves. Okay, so, so Helen, coming back to the online safety bill, does it tackle misinformation, for instance? Well, that's, that's the problem you know it's very far from perfect it's it's had a lot of changes in the in the 10 years it's been in, in gestation it has a real focus on children now mm -hmm. and a lot of the original clauses in the bill about kind of legal but harmful content um to adults have have kind of gone and why why do you think that because the environment has changed because there's not the political support for it well we, we don't have a government that loves regulation for a start. Mm -hmm. um, there's also always in internet-based spaces, you always have the issue of whether you are in some way damaging free speech. Um, and that, that particular lobby that, that works to protect free speech um, has really had some success here in, in pushing back what the bill could do. It's also true, I'm sure everyone would agree, that it's not easy to regulate things that are legal but harmful. You know, what is harm, what is misinformation? These are, these are different, kind of difficult kind of normative questions. Um, but yeah, there was a big pushback at those bits. At the same time, there was a big, big lobby and the sort of focus 
on children for understandable reasons because mm. there have been some very high profile, high, cases. high profile cases of children being harmed. Okay, so I, I did promise some solutions in, in this conversation. So what would you do to the bill to make it better? What, what, if, if there's one thing that you think, gosh, I wish we'd got that in. Well, there's lots of things. If I can only have one, I, I, I don't know. There's be, there, there is a big movement now to get some kind of safety for women and girls built into that bill, going to back to what I said at the beginning. Because, of course, because it now focuses on legal content, it's not lots of things um, done to women and girls is not illegal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there is a big move to do something about that and try and, and, and get it treated the other the, way, the same way as other protected characteristics. So I'm, going to, I'm going to give you a wish as well. What would you put into it? I mean, maybe I mentioned, mentioned this earlier. I mean, one of the big things that I will make it to that bill is just like making the platforms also responsible. It's not that, I mean, has, I'm it, has that happened a bit with this responsibility of company directors and so on? Slightly, but they also think about like now Elon Musk taking over Twitter, for example. Who is controlling that ecosystem? Just like you know, one person. So I would say we need more of that. Mm. Uh, so I mean, it's not a platform cannot say that we have build this, uh, you know, infrastructure that people can you know share content. You know, we are not responsible for the content being shared. We are responsible for, you know, maintaining the infrastructure. I don't think that works. So they at the same time, they are working on. You know, increasing engagement with the content, you know, selling more ads. But it's these two vectors, the vector of like making money and the vector of being, you know, responsible for the content they're sharing, that can be aligned somehow. But, but given that these companies are transnational or they're often not based certainly in the UK, is it possible really and truly to hold them to account? I know in the past, you know, you, they've had difficulty in the US Senate and places to get. Uh, the big bosses to actually turn up and give evidence to committees and then when they do you often find the people who are asking the questions don't necessarily understand what they're talking about how how, how easy is it really do you think to hold anyone to i account? mean come to that point so we observe things that was happening in middle east for example in case of facebook it was interesting like people sitting in san francisco couldn't think about the fact that what they built could has like that major impact on people like thousands of miles away. So you think about like the Arab Spring and Yeah, stuff. exactly. Yeah. So, but I mean, something that at least you can do, just like, and there is, there has been some uh, steps toward that goal, just like, for example, this company had been populated with large number of technical people. And the, some of this company started like recruiting more kind of social scientists, sociologists, political scientists, to try to understand the more kind of like human element of this ecosystem, rather than like just building servers or like, you know, fancy machine learning algorithm and so on. Mm. So I think it's not that there are like, is it a multifaceted problem, I would say. Yeah. Sylvia, anything going back to this bill? What would you put into it? Yeah, I think I would follow on from uh, what was it just say, uh, in the sense that I think uh, actually civil society should be brought in more and have more responsibility as well to go with um, regulation because I, like asking companies to regulate themselves or asking citizens to be more informed and make more informed choices online are both losing strategies in the mm. end. We actually need to have the information, the epistemic resources, as I call them, the information basically, and the infrastructure uh, as a civil society 
to be able to um, yeah, raise uh, issues and be aware of the kind of impacts that the platforms have. And so increasing the representation inside the, the companies should be one uh, absolute priority, but also having external, um, external institutions that uh, can have more improved access to uh, what is going on inside the companies and how it's using, for example, data and what kind of impacts it's having on specific societies. That should be part of the conversation more than it has been. And Helen, at the Online Harms Observatory, are these the kind of conversations you're having and, and how easy is it to translate a conversation like this into a proper sort of policy and, and persuade politicians, MPs, governments to actually take it seriously? Yeah, well, yes, that's exactly what we are doing. The observatory is a way of, um, it's a kind of AI-powered way to detect and to measure things like hate speech and misinformation and so on, and then kind of visualise them for policymakers. Because there's always a problem in very technical areas like this, that there's a lot of really valuable research going on on these issues, but it's very, very technical and there's a tendency for computer scientists, for example, to write very technical papers and then to sort of chuck them over the wall for the policymakers to catch the other side. And it's very hard for them to work with that or even to understand them. Um, so we're trying to kind of visualize the, our, our findings for policymakers. We have this observatory where, obviously, also extremely technical and kind of technically collected and curated data is visualized in terms of trends and they can see kind of signals coming up of some kind of try and anticipate the next really high profile case um, before it happens and, and can see that the, the trends are there. That's really interesting. So we, Chico, we've been quite down on the big tech companies so far, but let's think about something like Wikipedia, which is, you know, lots of people pulling together, working together, uh, not always right, but useful in the first instance. It, does that take a more ethical approach? Is it inherently better? I'm not sure that's true, but... I've seen a colleague describing Wikipedia as, I think his technical term was something that in theory shouldn't work, but in practice <laughs> it does. And I mean, Wikipedia had a funny start. In the beginning, it was just a half a dozen people writing it. In the beginning, half of the Wikipedia articles were written by one guy who was a librarian and he had lots of free time. And it's, that's actually how it works, you know. Like, can I do a quick survey here? Of course. Who here has read anything on Wikipedia? Who here has edited anything on Wikipedia? Oh, look around. That's still bad, though. To say. Not bad. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but that's kind of the point I wanted to make. Like, we use it, but the number of people who actually write something is a lot smaller. And if you were to kind of ch try to chart, okay, of the people who edit it, how many edit it a lot versus once in a lifetime? I'm in the once in a lifetime kind. You get, you know fewer and fewer people who actually really edit it. So there is certainly this bias of um, a lot of what we see is written by a few people. Uh, and that plays out in, in funny ways. Um, that there's even a kind of edit wars between, yeah. you know, if you look at the article for feta cheese, it used to say Greek cheese, then it says <laughs> Turkish Macedonian cheese. It depends on when you look at it. Um, there are more serious examples in that. There yeah. are lots of more serious <laughs> examples. but. You know, they, they happen sometimes in acute ways, sometimes in very serious ways. How do you discuss war mm. on Wikipedia? And still, you know, it's got several issues, um, lots of issues in kind of how do you make 
the information there reflects all points of view and how do you make it not unfair against a particular category yet somehow it works and there are many people trying to study to see okay how can we replicate the success make something that is genuinely valuable reliable and that yeah somehow it's still there hasn't been eaten by a billionaire <laughs> so it, it's kind of like a, a natural wonder of the internet more or less although Helen you gave a good example of, of uh, female scientists when we were talking earlier just just tell us a little bit about that about the effort to push them up the wikipedia stakes as it were yeah, well, that's another example of people kind of taking control of it instead of just being swayed by it. Um, I think it was done by a physicist at the Imperial University, Jessica Wade, who went round editing all the female scientists, or putting them on, actually, because it turned out that a lot of the female scientists didn't actually have a Wikipedia page. So she did an enormous amount to kind of level up, yeah. and still does, um, level up the kind of male bias, if you like, in, in Wikipedia. Yeah. You can't do that with a book. A, a book. <laughs> now look, we've been talking for half an hour, and we haven't mentioned ChatGPT. That might be the longest I've gone this week without talking about it. Everybody wants to talk about it. Chico, what is it, and are your students already using it? <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, I, I saw a case where I couldn't, it probably wasn't ChatGPT specifically because that one was released in December or something, but it was one of the earlier machines that can write for themselves. Uh, in this case, it was obvious because the text just looked completely nonsense. Anyway, it's basically a mechanical parrot or, you know, people who work on it call it a stochastic parrot, where stochastic is just a fancy word for random. Like, if you, if for anyone who's ever had a, a real parrot, a bird, you know, a friend of mine had it, and as a teenage boy, we taught it how to swear, because that's what <laughs> you do with a parrot. And that is, I mean, the parrot will repeat it, it doesn't know what it's saying, but it's well trained to mimic human language, and things like ChatGPT or any other, uh, recently we call them large language models, any machine with a name GPT on it, that's what they do. They are trained to mimic human language and in fact you've got a tiny version of that on your phone right now when you type your text messages and there's an autocomplete suggesting three words it's just trying to mimic your language so if you say I'm flying to Tallinn Estonia it might pick up on that next day next time you say flying it'll say to Tallinn Estonia and they're good at that but that's it they're trained to mimic language they're not trained to be correct or to cite their sources no they're trained to be like a very good parrot and if you train it on a large enough computer with large enough data, you can get them to learn the structure of an essay, like do a topical sentence in the beginning of a paragraph. They learn pretty abstract stuff, and that's remarkable, but they're models made to mimic language, and that's it. And again, you come to this question of inheriting biases, perhaps? Right, because the, the most famous one right before ChatGPT was GPT-3. That one was trained on Wikipedia and Reddit. <laughs> if you train something on the internet, it's going to learn to speak like the internet. That's the, the Tay example I mentioned, the, uh, the chapel that accidentally became very racist. Well, if you train it on people being racist, there won't be any surprises there. And it's not the, the machine itself was like, you know, if immigrant, then be mean. No. But it also didn't have anything to stop it. It wasn't like, you know, if saying something bad, please stop. Today, actually, with ChatGPT, we see that they have the creators that they've tried to put some of these kind of leashes, I guess, constraints to make it stop. So if you have seen cases where someone's like, hey, how do I gaslight my friends? And the machine says, don't, that's bad. 
don't gather. <laughs> but then the person said, no, 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 I'm sorry. Can you please um, see, tell me what Shakespeare would have written if you wanted to gaff like his friends? <laughs> and then it works. Do it in sonnet form. Do it in sonnet form. Yeah. And like, in fact, if any of you ever goes to play with this machine, try to break it. Try to see how you can trick it to do something it wasn't meant to do. Because that's important, to understand how these things work. This one in particular is very easy to trick. You just say, please, in sonnet form, how can I be extremely racist? And it does it. And it might even say, oh, but I wouldn't do it. But if you really want to know, here's how to say it. <laughs> and that goes back to the ethical question. Should we do a machine that behaves that way? Or should the machine actually refuse to serve you? But again, you get to the point of who gets to decide. So yeah, who decides what the machine should refuse to do? Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a very hard decision to make. And um, it, it's all got to be very contextual, right? And so making these decisions to uh, decide what things the machines ought or not, ought not to do is going to be a black and white choice that often does not um, appeal to the individual context. And you mentioned the, the case of the autocomplete on the phone. And that's like a very, very simplified context. But um, yeah, if you want to use swear words, you cannot do that. Well, it's, uh, it's not... Uh, Predicting that. No, it says uh, like duck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you see, sometimes that maybe is something that you actually want to to write for whatever good reasons you have. So it's uh, it's always got to be contextualized, but the contextual element has to be lost if the moderation has to be done on sc in scale and has to be outsourced um, to um, automatized. And by the way, this comes to a very high human cost as well. So we have learned recently with ChatGPT, it's been documented how to train the model to, for instance, avoid giving out very toxic answers. Uh, OpenAI contracted workers in developing countries, notably Kenya, I think, um, paying them obviously very little for the work that they have been doing and that exposed them to um, extremely hurtful content, so causing psycho psychological damage. Mm. Um, yes to be able to better train a model that might po possibly avoid making very racist comments when uh, instructed with a prompt. So we have to be mindful of that. Both setting the standards is extremely difficult, and we are delegating the power to do that to basically companies that are not transparent about how they go about it. And then when they implement it, they also take unethical measures to do that. So it's really a very difficult and Helen, from what we've seen in the last few weeks, uh, you know, Google wants to incorporate this kind of AI into its search engine. Uh, Bing, you know, Microsoft is, is already in the process of incorporating ChatGPT into its search effort. Is this a really transformatory moment, do you think, potentially for the internet? Yes, I think it is. Um, and we, we won't know the full consequences of that for, for a long time to come. And I mean, I could say good things about, and I, uh, maybe we will later, but I think there's one thing that I'm really worried about, which is that in the original idea of, of the internet, the World Wide Web, for example, the way we navigate the, the um, internet, the system of hyperlinks, it kind of connects each place on the internet to another place on the internet. You kind of know where things came from. There was an earlier version of the World Wide Web that actually did that with the lines of information. It was called Xanadu, but it didn't, didn't really take off, kind of the Tim Berners-Lee version one. But 
what, for example, Google's new search engine will do, or, or the new version of Bing, I, I believe they will start to offer us information without links. So when you get an answer, and I'm sure anyone, probably loads of people here have already played with it, you get an answer to your question, you don't get a link, you don't get a source, you get some text that it's decided you should have. And it's done that in all kinds of clever ways. It's programmed itself to, well, it's a parrot, as Chico said. But I mean, it's, you, you, you know, there's, there's lots of clever stuff going on there. And it's provided you an answer that will get you a sort of average sort of mark for your, for your essay. Um, unless Chico's your, uh, <laughs> probably got some, some way of getting around it. But you don't know where it came from. And... As Chico also said, there's no ground truth or anything, but uh, particularly as an academic researcher, you know, that's, that's kind of a horrible feeling that we're actually going backwards as far as the internet goes. We're going to a point, even Wikipedia, for example, we might have not liked students using that. We don't like it if they just use that to quote, but at least it says where things came from. And if it doesn't, it points out that it doesn't say where they come from. You know, it's unwrapped unsighted mm. and that is worrying that's a step backward it's information and of course the internet is the most brilliant source of information but it's information that for the first time we really won't know where it comes from yeah it's interesting so what were the good things you were going to say well I, again we'll be years before we know what are all the good things but um we, we are starting to use not chat gpt but more more sort of um more kind of ethical and open kind of large language models in the work we're doing on hate speech, for example, that I just met, to sort of get a basic model and then be able to train it to do ever smarter things on top of the kind of industry model, if you like. So are you using it to generate hate speech? Well, to train the models. So that they can recognise it, I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> Not serious. <laughs> but you're generating it without, without exposing people to it. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. That is one of the things you can do, yeah, yes. Um, and, and, you know, it'll generate, it'll, on the one hand, it'll be a huge engine for misinformation, right? Um, at the same time, it might help us to um, get better at detecting it. So, yeah, there are things like that. And I'm sure there will be all sorts of exciting examples in education. At the moment, we're just worrying about it. New, all New York public schools <coughs> have banned the use of ChatGPT because they know they don't have the methods to assess pupils if they're using it but maybe it will force us to create better methods of assessment where all the kind of basic boring things have been sort of done by the machine and then you go on to be more creative and more sort of um, inspirational in what you write I'm giving the good side okay you you know we might even start to build models that could provide a sort of personalized kind of education that takes account of what you you know your very specific kind of educational needs and background and behavior and stuff that that, that will make a package just for you that that might be something you know but but most coming back to the, the point you were making earlier how much should it concern us that these i'm going to call them products are being developed and produced essentially by private companies so I think, like, I mean, first of all, like any other technology, I would say GPT or the new version of Chat GPT is a technology with, is like a two-edged sword. In, in that, like, there are like dark side of it, but also like there are benefits of it, and I can think about lots of those. Then I think like any other 
product and platforms, you know, no. think about social media platforms, for instance. This one we should be also concerned about because, you know, the same reason, what are the incentives of a private company owning this kind of technology and how would that would be aligned for the good of society? Right, I'm going to be optimistic now before we open the floor to questions because we can't be miserable, it's not, it's not a good thing for us. I really want to think about what's a really positive development from each of you that you think, actually, this is great. This is, a, this is the internet at its best. It's what we hoped for back in, I don't know, whenever it was, 1990-something, when we all finally understood that there was this thing called the internet. The, the information superhighway, I think we used to call it in the mid-1990s. Most of let me start with you. What would you say is something really positive? So it was like one of the positive things that I've seen, I mean, so far, there, there is this feature on Twitter, I don't know how many of you have seen or used. There's a feature called BirdWatch, or now turned into Community Note, which is basically crowdsourcing fact-checking. And it's like similar idea that Chico mentioned about Wikipedia that worked very well, but this feature is like enables like lay people tagging content that they think is false or true, and then we are looking at the you know, aggregated outcome of that. And it was like contrary to what we were thinking, doing as good as many professional fact checkers and helps a lot. It's not a uh, you know perfect solution, but it's like very promising solution because you know fact checkers and journalists doing a great job, but there aren't many of those mm. who are helping fighting these kind of like fake news and misinformation. But that's a solution that can help scale fighting back, back the false content. And you know, similar to other problems that we, we saw working well in the, on the internet, it's, you know, it's very promising. It's good to hear some good news about Twitter, because I think lots yeah. of us are <laughs> struggling with it a little bit, I think it'd be fair to say. Sylvia, what about you? What would you pick as a, as a good news story? Uh, yeah, a development or something that I would like to see more. Uh, maybe the new ways in which we are forming communities online, and how actually, because of all the, uh, the harms <laughs> that we document, and all the ways that we see our epistemic communities breaking down on the internet, say with fake news or misinformation, we're actually more attuned to the fact that, oh, now we can engineer those environments and maybe we can do it better than we have been able to do it so far. So What's an example of that? Um, an example might be how people have been migrating to uh, different social media after Twitter has been acquired by Musk and for instance, working on Mastodon, and there's a whole conversation about oh, what are the features of social networks, for instance, that might facilitate better exchanges. Although I have to say, Mastodon is an example of where it's very sort of showing its seams, makes it, for someone like me, incredibly difficult to use. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I logged, it took me <laughs> half an hour to blooming get on the thing, oh, yeah. and, and then I've looked at it about twice since then. I, I agree, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sold on it either, but I think the, the positive spin on it is that we are aware that this is now essential infrastructure, and it's showing where things, uh, you know, what things we rely on and what is necessary for our public sphere now that we are living on the internet. I think that's a positive development, actually, because we have become more aware of what we actually want <laughs> and yeah this might lead us to develop better alternatives yeah. in the ones so that we have don't work in a way i guess it's the fact that we're bringing our knowledge and our experience of the internet in a way that perhaps we couldn't 10 years ago or even five years ago it's very interesting well, i want to be optimistic yeah no no absolutely chico i'm going to stay with this optimistic uh, theme what would you say is a good thing that's happened yeah. i i think a, a good thing is pulling similar to to what moses said it's how 
the internet, despite everything that's bad, uh, enables some things that were not imagined before. In, it's still in that category of things that shouldn't work. One of my favorite, I'll call it an art piece, was actually done on Reddit. It was some little sub web. Reddit is a massive collection of forums, for those who don't know. And someone created a thing called Place. It was a canvas with 10,000 pixels by 10,000 pixels. The numbers are maybe wrong. And every person could place one pixel every 10 minutes or so. So you could not paint it by yourself. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be pure rubbish. Nothing's going to work. But no, the outcome actually represented the different communities there. and People organized and it was beautiful. And I love when that stuff happens. Yeah, it is, that's one example of many. Collaboration between people who are not actually talking to each other, but the little groups kind of made it work. And it was an art piece in the end. It's interesting because that goes against some of the criticisms which are of uh, the way in which the internet has, has really fragmented society and, and, yeah. and divided us. Really idea. Helen, what about you? Come on, bring us the good news. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a political scientist, so I think about what's happened to politics. And I'm going to say something very controversial, which I was going to say something positive about social media and politics. And that is, think of an age before social media came along. And politics was very lumpy. You know, to do politics, you had to do something big, like go to a long meeting, join a political party, tramp the streets. It's like Oscar Wilde said, the trouble with socialism is it cuts so dreadfully into the evenings. <laughs> and what social media did is they allowed people to do a little bit of politics, just reading something and sending a little signal to other people that you've read it, sharing something, following some political issue or po political figure or policy issue. And those tiny acts of participation, I wrote a book about them a few years ago, can scale up to something massive. They almost always don't. I mean, you know, most mobilisations fail, but they can. And it means that, and still, there can be a contribution to something. Same as Chico said, but in the political world. Give I us an example of one that you've really loved as it's played out. Loved is not quite the right word. Right. But Enjoyed. It, 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 you know, the, 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 the Me Too movement, um, the, the revolutions of the Arab Spring, okay, by many definitions they're, they're, there's, um, they're a failure, but, but you know, I don't think we're only just beginning to realise how much it has sort of affected consciousness <laughs> about whole political systems. What I love is the fact that somebody with no more resources than a mobile phone, which, you know, almost even refugees will prioritise a mobile phone over other things, can fight injustice, even if it's in some tiny way. And that almost looks like democratic renewal. And I get very frustrated. There are so many books called The End of Democracy and How Democracies Die and Control or Delete How Social Media Crashed Our Democracy. And, you know, I do think it's a good idea if we sometimes think what politics were like before social media came along. Very interesting. Now, I'm going to open it up to you. Lots to talk about, but I'd love to ask questions. Yes, I'm going to start with you at the front. You mentioned the communication barriers between, you know, people publish computer science papers and throw them over the wall expecting them to be caught. Helen, are people talking to each other enough? I mean, no, people are never <laughs> talking to each other enough, but I would inject one piece of hope there, and I, uh, I was talking about this earlier today. Policymakers are really interested in this technology and what might be done with it. They may not understand it really well, but they do recognise its importance, its potential, you know, for public good, and to me that's, that's very exciting. It is a multidisciplinary task. And it's really important that we do it because the companies won't do it. 
you know, if you think about misinformation, for example, one of the really crucial things about misinformation is how much impact it has. The companies we've all been talking about, all they care about is reputational damage. They don't care about that sort of intense understanding of how humans behave in these environments and what's motivating them and what's harming them and so on. And that's the important multidisciplinary task. We all have to get together to understand that, and that's how we can affect change. Can we fix the internet without fixing people? <laughs> we talk about misinformation. The other day, someone is sharing something. Sometimes they might not know it's fake or not, but most of the time they know, but they share it because like, we want to be accepted, we want to be liked, we want to have followers. Most of them are going to give you first dibs on that. Have we got the internet we deserve? It's a reflection of who we are. Sure, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, first of all, okay, internet is part of our life, but also we wanted to make sure that it doesn't amplify these kind of like bad behavior existing off, existing offline world. If misinformation already exists in the offline world, we don't want to let internet facilitate the spread of misinformation or like hateful content or all of these things. That's the first step. And the next step is just like how we can use internet to spread good information such that the, there is a spillover effect on our society. So think about as internet as part of our society or like an interaction with, with, with the human being because human is an element of this ecosystem anyway. So we can also think about promoting good content, promoting better behavior, like more pro-social behavior such that there is an spillover effect in offline world as well. Chico, would you agree that, that we can chivy people to be better in the online space? I usually leave those things as a question to be answered empirically. You know, <laughs> let's try and find out. Um, I'm usually cynical about these things because our biology is still the same. Our brains are not changing that much. But you can educate people, right? Mm. I mean, we have schools in schools work to some degree. We have churches that teach people that killing is bad and in other, you know, every church has its own beliefs. So maybe being cynical is not the answer, that you can actually teach people to be nicer to each other and to like not share awful stuff. I love seeing how younger generations relate to the internet. I've got one younger cousin and I keep asking her, what do you think of this and that? And I can tell that she's got a different relationship to these algorithms than I do and my parents as well. But even my parents are already recognizing like, hey, see how the supermarket app thinks I'm an alcoholic because all I buy is this, <laughs> recommending me some more wine and stuff. <laughs> and like that understanding is something that is learned and we can get there. So yeah, I think so. What, right now it sounds awful, sounds like, you know, we should just delete the internet, but actually there's a lot of things worth saving. Sylvia, before we move on. Um, yeah, I was thinking I probably cynical with like Chico, uh, and I mean the the question itself is interesting because uh, like there's often this opposition between what the technologies are and what people are that use them, but actually there is no such distinction in, in many cases. Uh, like we are shaped by our environments, and our environments often reflect the way that we build them. Um, and in this case, it's particularly yeah, obvious because uh, the way people share things online reflects um, what things they value. And I mean, deciding how to make people better online relies on understanding that we might already know what is a good life, which we obviously 
don't. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, we wouldn't be still asking uh, these questions since <laughs> forever. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are obviously harmful, <laughs> like putting some a group of people in a room without food or water for a few days might lead to very bad results very predictably. And similarly, putting people online and letting them interact in an environment that brings out the worst because of the incentives that they are, are responding to is also going to lead to very predictable results by everyone's life. So <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm cynical in the sense that I don't think we are going to build a technological utopia. Um, but, um, yeah, we should at least have a baseline of things that, um, as an infrastructure, just simply won't take us anywhere good. That's so interesting and so profound, in a sense, as a conversation, and one I guess we'll keep having and, and revisiting. I think there was a yes. In the efforts at trying to grow worker power in many of these effectively marketing firms, Google, Facebook, etc., to be you know, a positive development, you know, over the last few years, but particularly this past year, and we talk about how corporations decide, decide things, that's usually white men of a particular socioeconomic class. So if, if anybody would like to just sort of comment where they, where do they see worker power as starting to sort of push into these sorts of, um, whether it's recommendation engines, project, project choices, all of those. And, and by worker power, you're talking about the people that work within the companies. Yes, as in as in unionization efforts, whether that's within Google or as the contractors or whomever. Helena, I mean, it, I don't know if you have much experience of this of talking to people. And well, I mean, we, you're, I see that as a as a positive development. Actually, I mean, it comes back to the point we were talking about earlier about every single regulator of everything is now having to become in part an expert on some aspect of technology you know every market every kind of um, everything that we want to regulate is shifting um, how can you regulate workers in google or in amazon warehouses or in uber if you don't have some understanding of the uh, of the um, uh, 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 of the way that their algorithms work and so we are having to think about those things. We're also having to think about trade unions. You know, we're getting trade unions in place in a way, a completely different sort of, of trade union, but sort of collective action on behalf of the workers within these companies. Again, having to completely rethink the way um, because they've just come in and done everything the way that they wanted to and not worried about these things and they weren't regulated because the regulators, you know, can't understand exactly what they're doing and how people are being treated. Um, so there is something profound going on, definitely, and it's something that, that, that needs to happen, but we're very, you know, we're very far from a, from a solution, but I, 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 I do see it as, as, as positive. I don't know if any of you have any thoughts on the kind of people that work in these companies and the effect they have on the way in which the companies operate, but indeed some of the the influence that they may have on the way the rest of us work. I mean, these things are very, these companies tend to be quite hierarchical. I can't remember who stated at some point that the, the things you produce, they reflect the kind of organization charts of the company. If you have companies that are very centralized, you end up with software that looks like that. And that, by that I mean that Google fired their ethics team and the leads of their ethics team basically because they wrote about these parrots I was talking about. <coughs> they 
well, as far as I know, they came up with the name. Um, and well, they the, the top managing team didn't like it, so they're out. And a lot of these companies, they do that. They're trying to squash uh, any any kind of formation of a union. And then you get to cases like Uber, because Uber definitely plays the platform card. They say, oh, we don't own any cars. We're not a transport company. We, we just allow people to be independent drivers. How can you go on strike if you're not quite an employee? It's harder, but it's starting to happen. It is starting to happen, and that is partly because regulators are starting to understand it better and to develop the kind of skills that they, expertise that they need. So even the workplace is being redefined, the nature of work is being redefined. Yeah. Totally. Sylvia, did you want to come in? Yeah, no, I, actually I was going to touch on the similar point as Chico, the, the, the fact that, for instance, at Google, it was very clear what, uh, what happened with the, their AI ethics team that was actually cutting edge. and. They had an incentive to, to have them inside the company, but it turns out probably mostly for uh, public image. And it goes back to Helen's point earlier that these companies in the end have their incentives are mostly aligned with PR, <laughs> but mm -hmm. and uh, they tend to have a workforce that is not very diverse either. So it's a very positive development <laughs> that they uh, the workers at these companies are like starting to like think about what the power that they hold actually is. At the same time, we also need to push for more diversity within the companies because, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all very good, uh, but if in the end it's uh, it's only a very non-diverse cohort of people who are uh, like ringing the the bell and taking the the high stand, that's not going to be enough. <laughs> and in this point that you're making, it, I think. It's not just about you know making sure that every possible category of person is represented. No, it's actually a way to prevent your company from producing stuff that is harmful and dangerous. Uh, on the kind of iPhones that can unlock with facial recognition, there were people in China who were unlocking their co-workers' iPhones just because the phone couldn't tell an Asian face from another. And come on, that could have been fixed probably if you had on the people making the facial recognition thing maybe more Asian people who could say, hey, it doesn't work on my face. <laughs> it's that level, you know, it's not about like making sure that we're all a part of it, but no, it's genuinely the way to deliver better services, whether it's a recommendation algorithm or Uber or something. Really interesting, lots of things that I imagine, I hope people are talking about in these companies and uh, in Silicon Valley and things. Thank you very much for your company and Thank your you. time. We'll be in the bar, having a drink, please come and carry on the conversation. You've been listening to a discussion held by the Institute of Data Science and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Exeter in partnership with Agile Rabbit. Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. We focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the Southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agile-rabbit.com.